everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 87, LXDE, recorded March 17th, 2013, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Welcome back, everybody. This week, we're going to give a glancing blow, at least, to Chris's review of his latest uh, experiment in um, the world of windowing systems. Uh, you've been with this one what, uh, almost two months now, right, Chris? About a month and a half and until a half. I had to, until I switched. And that Chris, of course, is Chris Neves, the command line godfather. How you doing, brother? Oh, I'm doing, doing. I suppose. I, I see sore. by your, see by the background there that you are back at home. That's good news. I am. Yes, I got the phone call. Oh, it must have been a Wednesday ish, something like that. Tuesday or Wednesday, saying that. Uh, that it, it, they're sorry for the inconvenience in that there should be a credit on my bill and and uh the problem was all on their side so yeah and you said which duh oh yeah <laughs> of and course the like, problem's um, all on your side yeah considering it was working great one right. day and then it just turned off and as always to bring balance to the force we have the gooey kid mr seth anderson hiya seth Hey, Mark, and welcome, Element OP Faithful. What's going on in your life this week? Man, not a whole lot. I uh, My email got hacked on Monday. I sent out some uh, messages to some website. I don't even know what it was for. And You did I indeed. Something... I got a couple of those. So did I, because apparently <laughs> I sent them to myself. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then uh, I checked, and my account got accessed from somewhere over in Thailand. So... I don't know how they did it, but, uh, you know, I'm sure it's some vulnerability or whatever. So I had to change my password. And then for like the next three days, Yahoo told me, you know, your account's been compromised. Change your password. I'm like, I just did that yesterday. So I, I went through several password changes. And uh, the last one, I, I couldn't tell you what it is because I just started making up random numbers on the keyboard and uh, I wrote it down. So if I lose that, I'm out. Last pass, brother. Last yep. pass. Last pass. Yeah. I uh, I haven't, I don't want to do that yet. You I just drink the Kool-Aid, just do it. The free service would be great. It's awesome. I know. Wow. I'm I'm about to get an Android, uh, an Asus Transformer tablet, so I'll, I'll rethink my whole situation then. But for right now, I still like ones that I can remember, although I really can't remember this one. So I got an email. Um... Well, the pro part of the problem, Seth, is that your password's been password one two three for like eight years, <laughs> and I'm sure that didn't have any yeah, help. Any? No, I, I got an email from a listener who said, "Hey, my wife's Yahoo account was recently hacked. What can we do about it?" Um, and his actual question was, "Would a Boris box help that?" And I said, "I had to say no because you're outside your network. It's you know you're not doing any good there. Uh, secondly, it's probably nothing your wife did." And very, it's very possible she wasn't even hacked because often people just stick random right. headers on random uh, uh, outgoing emails and, you know, you're not even, you're not even hacked. But, uh, you know, it sounds like Yahoo had a major uh, breach here because uh, you're the fifth person I've heard just this week tell me that, that same story. Yeah. And like I say, when I went to Yahoo's and uh, I was on my corporate network at work doing this, so... Um, you know, I'm pretty sure that it was an actual Yahoo site that was telling me that it was where my last access had been and it was over in Thailand. Right. So, yeah. And, you know, and 
I mean, my password meets the complexity requirements, but it had been there for a long time. So I don't know if I was on a network that was compromised and sniffed it out or, you know, some some vulnerability in some app could have done it. Or nah, just, the, you know. just the numbers that I've seen, it had to be on Yahoo's side. Their database yeah. got hacked. Yeah, that's it what I to think, too. So just an update, I, I told you last week that our old friend Aaron, the former fat guy butler, would be running the Georgia Marathon today. He started this morning, according to the text message I got, I, you could sign up on their website to track runners. They've got um, location things in their in their bibs. It's not GPS, it's um, NFC probably, Arf. but anyway, RFID, something like that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, at 719, he crossed the, the starting line. Considering there were eleven thousand people and it started at seven, that's not bad. Right. Yeah, that's and, uh, pretty high up there. Marathon, in case you don't know, is twenty six point two miles, and um, he ran the first half marathon, the first thirteen point one, uh, with a t- uh, an average time of thirteen minutes per mile, which is not bad at all. Um, no, no, that's but good. At about mile fifteen. Uh, an old injury that's been plaguing him for a while flared up, um, and he got to where he couldn't run anymore. He had to walk, and then uh, after a few more miles, um, he couldn't even walk anymore, and uh, he was afraid he might get lost. They they were picking up the cones and closing the course behind him, and they told him you got to either get on the sag wagon, what they call it, or or find your own way. And so he decided discretion was the better part of valor, and he made it twenty and a half miles uh, before the injury sidelined him. And uh, mm. so basically he ran a half marathon and a 10K in one day. Um, and while he fell wow. short of his goal, he fell five miles short of his goal, my hat's off to him. That's a heck of a run right there. He yeah, really is. For a guy that weighed nearly 400 pounds uh, three years ago, that's pretty impressive. Uh, no, that is. You know, I'm not going to qualify that. That's pretty impressive for anybody. Right. <laughs> it's too bad the injury kicked him in the end. Right. You know, I, I bet you he would have finished if it if it wouldn't been for his old injury coming up. Yeah, it's he's got a problem with it's called the IT band, the ilial tibial band. It runs from the hip down the the side of the leg to the knee, and when when that uh, flares, you literally can't do anything. It's not it's not a matter of gutting it out. It's not you know sucking up the pain. You just can't. Your body says, "Oh, I ain't gonna do it." Um, and so. You know, there there's no amount of fight that could have gotten him through that. His his body just stopped on him. Oh, that's too bad. So, uh, yeah. we, mad props to you, Aaron. Excellent work. Yeah, kind of. You know, I'm I'm training for my 5K, and that's nothing compared to what he did. But um, I'm I hope to be up there with him at some point, being able to do that. Yep. And uh, I I kind of went the other direction with my weekend. Instead of running a marathon, I cured many pounds of meat. Um, those of you who follow me on Facebook or Google Plus have seen this. Um, I've talked about it before. I like to make bacon and whatever. I started uh, something new. I'm, I'm really getting into this. It's called charcuterie. The the um, the old world arts of curing and preserving meats with with salts and chemicals. Um, and so I start. I made a corned beef, um, hmm. which is brisket. And I love corned beef. And then I took half of that corned beef and made a pastrami out of it, which is just a smoked corned beef. It's the same meat, just treated a little and smoked. So um, they cured for 14 days, the, the brisket did, and I also made bacon. 
I did a quick cure on it for only five days. Uh, so I, uh, over the, oh, yesterday, I smoked them both and prepared them both and I steamed the corned beef and then I smoked and then steamed the, the, uh, the pastrami. And then you got to stick them back in the fridge overnight so they can firm up before you can slice them. So that was nightmarish um, having to wait. But I did cut off a chunk of the corned beef last night and made some of the best corned beef hash I've ever had in my life. It's not the stuff cool. of the can people. Uh, and so, you know, St. Patrick's Day, you got to have corned beef, right? Uh, although That's right. the Irish have no idea what corned beef is. It's an American tradition brought by Jews, actually. There you go. A Jewish-American-Irish tradition. Um. It hits everything. There you go. So, uh, and I sliced up the bacon just today. I haven't tasted any of it yet. Uh, the, just haven't had the opportunity. But yeah, I did uh, five five pounds of pastrami and four pounds of corned beef and uh, just under five pounds of bacon. So I was just a smoking, cooking, steaming fool yesterday, and I love it. Awesome. Epic sandwiches were served. That's all I have it's, to say. Yeah, I would say that so. Sounds awesome. I went. I went to the store. I was gonna try to even make my own rye bread, but I couldn't find rye flour anywhere. So I went to the store and got some good artist artisanal quality rye bread and some good spicy brown mustard and some some uh, nice pungent Swiss cheese and made myself a big steaming pastrami sandwich. Ah, it was a good thing. All while Aaron you, was running. You're making <laughs> me hungry. Stop it. <laughs> I haven't yeah, ate yet. Y'all are gonna have to continue this podcast without me. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't had dinner. That was at lunch, and I was I was stuffed. I have I, st- I probably won't have dinner tonight. But anyway, um, and Seth, I see you have another holiday that we need to celebrate. That's ne- very near and dear to the audience of this show. Yes, I, I thought you personally, Mark, would be very interested to know that on March sixteenth, uh, Richard Stallman turned sixteen. 16- so happy belated birthday to Richard Stallman from all of us at the um, Everyday Linux podcast. You're our favorite. Now I seem to have this reputation of being a Stallman <laughs> hater. I'm not. Um, I I do appreciate the work that the man did that was worth appreciating, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Well, you know, just I'm trying to bring balance to the force. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> happy birthday, RMS. Right. I wonder if he believes in birthday cakes or if that's a problem too, because you can't open source the cake. Once it's been made, it's all proprietary. It's bound up there and you can't break it apart. Well, you can, and that process is called digestion. So <laughs> he's, he's probably all about the open source. That's reverse engineering a cake right there. Yep, that's pretty good. But I don't think I want to be on the receiving end of that reverse engineered right. cake. <laughs> We can build it better. Um, uh, we did have some listener comments to dive into quite a bit, so uh, uh, keep them coming, guys. And um, and we love getting. <laughs> Sorry, I just read the chat room. The Linux ghost says, "Happy GNU slash birthday, Richard." Oh, that was awesome. <laughs> oh, anyway, uh, an email from Gordon, a rather lengthy one, but there's some good stuff in there, so I wanted to. Uh, to address it. Uh, Gordon says, your backup episode was great and timely. The, the desktop machine finally gave up the ghost, and I've been planning uh, what to replace it with and what to implement a better backup system at home. I'm currently considering an 8-core machine so I can use virtual machines better, considering KVM. 
I intend to use a small hard drive for the OS to reside on, and these use a separate three terabyte data drive for home. Uh, first place, the data is is on the machine. Um, in the house, we ha- also have two laptops, an iPad, and an Asus tablet, and two phones that have their own data. Uh, for off-site backup, I'm thinking of a removable hard drive in a safe deposit box or a relative's house. Uh, not out of stay, but will survive if the house burns down. Third place, a backup. Um, sorry, third place, a data backup is off-site. Um, my question is about how to handle the second-level backup. I don't want to uh, go build a second machine for a dedicated backup server at the same time as procuring a new desktop. What do you think if I use a second three terabyte drive in the desktop as the backup server for all the computers in the house? So one drive is in the machine's working data and the other drive is in the home network backup drive with all the data from all the computers. You see any problem with this idea of separate physical drives, even though they're in the same physical machine? I suppose using an internal SATA isn't much different from external USB, or maybe I'm wrong on that. I was originally considering using two three terabyte drives in a RAID 1, but now I realize that provides redundancy on the most current stuff, but no protection for the oops didn't mean to delete that file. So I'm going to interrupt his email now and and, uh, share the the answer that I emailed back to him. Uh, I encourage against making your backup be in the same machine as your primary data uh, because there's so many things that can hit happen at the machine level. So your mm-hmm. your SATA card can can go nuts and scramble both drives. You know, a power surge takes out both drives. I don't I don't consider that a, a solid backup source. So what I recommended for him is, you know, he's a geeky guy. He's looking to not spend money. Go buy a Raspberry Pi for twenty five bucks. Throw an OS on that and make it your backup server. Um, or if you want to spend a little more money and do a little less work, uh, something I've talked about on this show bo- show before, the Pogo Plug device is great for that. It sits on your network. Uh, and it just, it's basically a really poor man's NAS. So those, those are the options I recommended. You, what do you guys think? Go ahead, Chris. Okay. Um, well, I would say the first thing I would have him look at is one of the, just a cheap, um, I can't remember the name. I, I'm trying to remember what the different versions are, but the one I, that sticks in my head because I like the system the best is called ReadyNAS from Netgear. Um, I've seen them anywhere between one and two drive to five, no, four and then eight drive, and it's just a NAS. So there is no head, there's no headroom that you're running off of a, a 12 volt power supply. Um, then you can have your redundant um, RAID set up for drive mirroring, and everything will talk to it. Um, but that's you know you're going to spend some money getting that particular system set up. Uh, but if you're already looking at buying extra three terabyte drives, then maybe instead of buying three terabyte drives, you buy two one terabyte drives, and the rest of that money you used to buy the NAS. Um, the other thing that I would say though about uh, before that, where he was talking about his KVM solution, one thing to remember. KVM puts all defaultly puts all of the images. They don't go in home. They go in their own folder. So if you're going to put a, the KVM images on, you're going to have to make sure you know how to move those KVM images out of. Um, I think it's etc slash uh, libvert or something like that. But they yeah they don't reside in home. They reside on the root directory. 
Yeah, quick the, sim the, link would fix that though. Yeah. Right, I'm just making sure that he knows that right. if he's going to use KVM, he needs to make sure to move those those images off because otherwise they're going to eat up that drive. All right. Seth, anything you want to comment on before we move on? No, I just think that with the number of devices you're talking about, I do think you need a separate thing for backup. If it was just one or two, you know, I might not. But since you've already got a good net, a good size network there for a home, Go ahead and invest, you know, whether it be a Raspberry Pi or some other cheap device like that, um, into making a separate backup computer. Um, or even Drobo. I mean, yeah. that's big money spending there, but, you know, there's a reason why Drobo costs the money it does. Yeah, but his whole thing was he didn't want to spend that much money at once. He didn't want to buy two computers. So, you know, a Raspberry Pi can be done for 25 bucks and, and an afternoon of work. Uh, mm -hmm. So you know. That's well, the the ready NAS is I've I've set up a couple of ready NASs, and if you catch them on sale, you can pick up the ready NAS, a four drive ready NAS, and the drives for less than seven hundred. And that, like I said, remember that's four drives. You don't need to fill all four drive bays at once right. to get the device to work. But that would be something to look for because I know that that product was pretty much point click. It's done, and it offers. Um, if you're like at a hotel or something and you want to stream video off of it, it offers a client for all of the major platforms, including your phones and tablets. So you'd yeah. be able to even access it outside of the home. Pogo Plug allegedly does that. It just doesn't do it very well. Yeah, see, the ReadyNAS <laughs> does good. I've, I've, I've had really good luck with it. Um, the two businesses that I've put it in love it. They actually they want to have another one. So they can have two different readiness for uh, different data, different data sets. All right. So we'll pick up with his email. Glad I listened to your show. I checked out Backup PC and it looks awesome and I will likely go that route. Uh, besides data backup, I'm also looking at running a media server considering Plex. What are your thoughts about virtualization? Should I just install my favorite distro, Mint, uh, right on the machine, run Backup PC inside of it and also run the media server on it? Uh, and turn on KVM for easy access to VMs. My wife prefers Windows 7, and dual boot is a pain in the uh, posterior for switching. Uh, or uh, should I set up backup PC inside of a backup server VM to keep it separated from my daily usage setup? Uh, the media server inside its own VM, and perhaps even my daily usage distro in its own VM. Or am I going too far? My answer to that was, use the crap out of that big 8-core server. Throw VMs all over the place. Your wife uh, can have one button access to a fully functional Windows VM. You can have one button access to uh, your media server. That, that's that, I think that's fine. In fact, that's the way I would prefer to do it. Um, it keeps uh, data separate uh, and basic functionality separate. The only thing you got to watch out for. I, I don't. I'm not sure how KVM handles memory management. Uh, it may not be able to share the memory. Uh, some VMs. Um, Grab, if you say, I, I'm going to give two gigs of RAM to this virtual machine, it grabs that two gigs and never lets it go. Others can allocate up to two gigs based on what's going on. Uh, I know the VMware uh, software does that. It's great. You can allocate more RAM than you actually have in your machine, and it, the software will dynamically associate who needs what based on what they're doing. I don't know if KVM does that. So that's the caveat of loading up a bunch of VMs. you got to be careful about RAM. Yeah, if yep. I remember correctly, KVM is very similar to virtual or to VMware when it comes to memory management, where VirtualBox is where you're saying earlier where it locks that RAM up and you can't use it anywhere else. 
Yeah, so just you but, know, read the user's manual on that one. Definitely read the user's manual. Talk about, ask about it in. Uh, um, if you're gonna go KVM though, I would recommend not using Mint. Um, I would actually recommend using Fedora for for the K, for the KVM virtualizing, um, because KVM is the heart of it is at Red Hat. Uh, they have some special sauce that they put into their Fedora and, and Red Hat distribution that make uh, the Spice plugin work better. So that would be my only caveat is is you might want to think about which virtualizing system you're going to go with because KVM works. It's great. I love it. Um, I'm using it right now on both my laptop here at the house and my work machine. Um, but... Yeah, when you use it outside of Fedora, the, the some of the plugins they work, but they're not quite as clean. And one of the issues you might run into running a media server uh, in a VM is uh, contention with the display ports. Uh, so if you've got say a USB out and a VGA out, and you're using VGA for your daily use, and you've assigned the the uh, the uh, HDMI, I think I said USB HDMI to uh, the Plex server, then you'd be okay. But if you're trying to use HDMI for both, you're going to have some contention issues there. Uh, it's going to be difficult to 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 stream your video out while your wife is trying to use the Windows XP VM. So you know, which mm-hmm. whatever, uh, however you want to do that, you just got to be aware that it is a shared resource. So my approach with VMs is whatever the the operating system I want to live in is, that's the one I put on the machine. And then I use VMs for ancillary stuff. So I don't want to uh, load up an, uh, a VM that is my primary workspace. Now, if you're using a full-on hypervisor, you can do that. Uh, I think Zen works. Is that right, Zen? Uh, yeah. Offers that. That's a full-on hypervisor. Hardware mode uh, doesn't really give you an operating system to work in. Um and there's another one. There's a, there's there's an open Zen the open source one. I'm I'm yeah. Proxmox. Zen's the open Proxmox is the other one I'm thinking oh, of. They're the same. They're okay. the core of them are the same. It's just someone else distributes it. Okay. So those those guys um, they take over the bare metal and only serve up VMs. So you don't have an op- operating system you can actually live in. So you you know there's lots of options out there when you get a virtualization. Yeah, I guess the the other question that comes up though too when you're talking about v, if you want to virtualize your main desktop, um, what are you doing on your day to day desktop? Are you just web browsing? Are you just documents? Because if you're doing rich media encoding, you know, mixing video and and doing heavy Photoshop or heavy GIMP work, uh, VMs might start coming to a little bit of an issue there if you're doing it all through a VM because of the heavy I.O. Yeah, disk input-output is always going to be the bottleneck of any VM because you're essentially reading and writing from a zip file, and that takes overhead and takes time. All right, I think we beat that email to death. Uh, Jeff wrote in, and he said a bunch of things, and some of his email uh, we're going to address later on, but there was one comment there that I wanted to uh, to comment on, one comment I wanted to comment on. Jeff said, I'm on uh, Google+. Plus." But your community isn't very active there. I, my comment on that is, that's your fault, Jeff. Not just yours. But a community is, is something that the community has to com- contribute to, right? And I, I've seen this many times as the host of a forum, not, not only the Element OP forums, but others. 
I, I hear that complaint often that there's there's nothing going on in the community, and it's always a lurker who says that. Somebody who's only read and never posted. Well, that's how communities exist. You know, my job is to put it up there and host it and moderate it, but not to, uh, you know, pump content into it. You know, you don't you don't want to be a cheerleader. That not only does it get old for me, it gets annoying for you over time. So the the Google Plus community is there. It's out there. It's a home base. Use it if you want to. Don't if you don't. I don't get bent out of shape about forums or Google Plus or whatever else communities that that sit stagnant. I figure uh, the day that there's a need for them, they'll be there. And if there, if there's no activity, it just means nobody needs it. And that doesn't bother me in the least. So that's my comment on communities. You guys have any feedback there? Well, I, I mirror that comment, Mark. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of things I always see about a community. If the, you don't have active community members, you know, cause we spend all our time day to day time, you know, either working on the show or working on our day to day live stuff. Um, we don't get paid to help bring content to the G plus community or our own forums. Um, you know, if we, if this was a, a, a full-time job, yeah, we would be able to be in there all the time and doing things in the community pages. But I mean, sorry, we, we love you audience members, but you know, we got to pay the bills too. <laughs> Uh, when I was working at uh, at a school district, somebody uh, we had a CMS, and every teacher, every administrator, every student had access to 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 put stuff up there. Students couldn't publish; they had to run it through somebody else to publish it. But they could create content. All st- teachers had the ability to publish. So every now and then, I would get this comment: "There's nothing on their web page," and so I'd say, "Go put something on the web page." Uh, you know, so the web page hasn't changed in three months. Okay, go fix that. That's that's up to you, not me. I provided this resource. Now go to town on it. So that's what I say to you, Jeff, and others like you. I'm not picking on you, Jess. Jeff. I'm just saying that um, that you know you you brought up the discussion. And Nightstar in the chat room says if I'm the only one posting in the community, it's not needed. My web page does that. You're exactly right. I could have a blog that only I can contribute to. So yeah. it's up to you guys. Yeah, that's um when I when people post in the in like our forums over on Element OP, I respond and interact with those, but I don't really do a lot of initiation over there because I don't really see that as my role. We initiate every Sunday, and then if y'all, you know, and the interaction is, you know, that's like our serve, and if you want to volley it back to us, well, you know, you can respond via comments, um, emails, or in the forums, and then, you know, we'll interact, but I, I can't I don't know. I well, can't is the wrong word, but I I just don't initiate a lot in the forums. So, but I do try to respond. Seth, I give you credit for trying to bring a sports reference into a, a geek show, but you had to pick the gayest sport on the planet to reference. <laughs> well, s- serve and volley seem to fit there, you know. Right. Um, I don't know. Sorry, it just didn't <laughs> seem like you know. I I didn't. I don't know. I guess I could have went with baseball there. <laughs> <laughs> left a floater over the plate for you yeah. and it's your job to swing but that took too much work because <laughs> <laughs> we're all about lazy podcasts lazy analogies here and another comment from rob uh rob says another hour and a bit well spent in your company guys i imagine my surprise when jonathan nadu told you about a guy supporting a blind user with sonar it is i i've always enjoyed hearing 
uh, Jonathan on podcast. He has a great voice and a very inspirational and motivational, a genuine guy. He said, I heard him uh, on quite a few shows and just had to, as he said, I heard him on quite a few shows and just had to get involved. I supported this lady and her partner a few years ago with IT stuff in a previous job. She was just, just then getting Jaws. Uh, now, just to uh, make sure uh, everybody remembers what we're talking about, Jonathan was talking about uh, a woman who uh, had been using Jaws and some well-intentioned person formatted her machine. She didn't have another copy of Jaws, didn't have a spare $1,000 laying around to go get Jaws. And so a well-intentioned person, which turns out to be Rob, uh, threw um, sonar on there and within a few minutes, she was ready to go. So this is what Rob's talking about. It was pure luck I bumped into them again a few weeks ago. Uh, now they make jewelry as a hobby, and our local supply shop is next door to my computer repair shop. It was literally five minutes after Sonar and Orca, Orca loaded that she was back doing stuff she missed. She's still amazed at how fast the machine starts and shut downs. It was sometimes 15 minutes before Windows and Jaws would let her do something. The difference uh, this one thing has made to her is amazing. The other benefit is that her partner can support her with Sonar. I know he's uh, quite computer literate and has used GNU Linux, almost heard your eyebrow twitch there, in the past, and wanted to use a more modern distro uh, to make his machine, which is identical to hers, just as responsive. Jonathan says that Sonar is capable of providing jobs, and I agree. This lady's partner has a job, be it unpaid, but if he wants, he can now support other visually impaired users with the skills he's acquiring now. No. Tonight, after I finish this message, I will be getting in touch with our local Action for the Blind group to see if they have anyone who can make it known that there's an alternative to the expensive JAWS program. With an old computer, some, some speakers or headphones, and an internet connection, people can get to use technology no matter what their impairment, and possibly employment uh, supporting others. This last bit cannot be emphasized enough. The challenge to use sonar as a visually impaired user would is quite a, bit, uh, quite a humbling thing to do. I know as I tested Sonar RS with my monitor off, but allowed myself to see the keys. Thanks, guys, for the entertainment and information. Look forward to episode 87. Well, thank you, Rob, for the feedback. That's a great story. Yeah, that is awesome. And thank you for doing something like that for, you know, someone who needed the help. That's that's just shows what a good community member could be. And it, it answers the question, um, you know, is Linux hard? I get that a lot, you know. Uh, people still think Linux is... DOS, right? Uh, and that's the you know can I can a can an average person use Linux? Well, this woman is using it within five minutes, and she's you know doesn't sound like she's a PhD from Stanford. She's just a a, a lady who likes to make stuff. Uh, so a regular average everyday person, five minutes after it being introduced to Linux and Sonar, was on the move. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think that if you were going to move from Windows 7 to either Windows 8 or Linux, it would be the same amount of learning. You know, you would be learning different things, but I think um, I, I, because they're both so different from Windows 7, you would, have to, you would have to learn something new. So is what you're going to learn the newest version of Windows or a different OS, but you're right. still going to have to learn something. This is an analogy I've said before, maybe on this show, maybe not, but uh, oftentimes businesses will be considering a switch uh, from, say, Windows to, to Linux, and they'll say, you know, there's there's retraining that has to be done, we've got to convert all our documents, we may have to do even some infrastructure changes to support this, 
it, it's just not worth it. It's too much effort. Uh, I saw this all the time in education, for example, yep. that the same argument would be used. However, a school would get a grant and get a whole bunch of MacBooks and have to change all their documents and retrain all their users and even upgrade some of their infrastructure just to be able to use the Macs. The exact same problem, but because it cost a ton, nobody complained. You can only complain if the pain is free. If you have to pay a buttload for the pain, then it's okay. Right. And I never understood that, ever. And I'm dealing with that now. So, yay me. So anytime you change systems, there's going to be a pain involved. But for some reason, pain that doesn't cost anything isn't as good as very expensive pain. Yeah, I was... I was having a conversation with a school administrator and you know, we were talking about the whole uh, open source versus Microsoft software. And in particular, we, we were talking about open office versus Microsoft office. And this is before LibreOffice was really an alternative. And he was talking about how, you know, the learning the next version of office. And I said, really, how, how well did you learn office 2010 when you were in high school 20 years ago? Right. And his response then changed from open source to Microsoft versus, to, well, we have a course that teaches Microsoft, and that's what they use in business. Right. So, you know, it's like the conversation didn't work anymore, so they totally uh, changed the parameters of it. And so. I hear that argument a lot, too. That's what they use in business. That argument is only valid if your ninth grader goes to work for um, EDS next month. But that's not what's going to happen. Your ninth right. grader is going to go through and be a 10th grader, an 11th grader, a 12th grader, then he's going to go to college and be a freshman, a sophomore, a junior, a senior. Then eight years will have passed from the time you're teaching him this uh, business computer information class to the yep. time he gets in the work. He's not going to be using what you teach him. doesn't matter what you teach him. He's not going to be using the same thing. Yeah, you're, you're teaching pro, uh, procedures, not applications. So maybe you have your seniors don't be afraid of the computer. go through a six-week really, unit teach, I think. on Microsoft Office, which is all it takes to be totally comfortable with everything about it. So you've spent the last several years teaching them the basics of word processing, of creating Office-style documents, not Office-style as in Microsoft Office, but Office is what you need in an Office space, and then spend a few minutes saying, okay, and here's Windows. If you really want to prepare them for the business world, then you're then you're doing your thing. But it's just a specious argument people use. Yeah, and I'll be actually in this argument um, this year. We're going to be doing our new five-year plan for the school. And I have a teacher who is adamant about getting Office back because we moved to Google Docs at the school. And I am going to fight tooth, nail, and dirty if I have to. At what I always said when a teacher said, I want Office back, is like, okay, uh, give me five of your computers back, and, and I'll do that, because that's what it will cost. It's about mm-hmm. $5,000 for your class to have a license. Those computers are 1000 bucks each. Which five do you want to give up? Well, I need all of them. Okay, then you can have them and have LibreOffice on them. But I need Office. Okay, which five computers do you want to give? Because that's the, that's the decision I have to make as the administrator. Yep. That well, money see, doesn't just crap out of my butt. It's got to come from somewhere. And see, the, the argument he's going to throw at me is the fact that they're going to be running a tech levy. And it's like, okay, so you're going to run a tech levy for an office program for the district every five years? Right. And for so, those not familiar, a tech levy is a specific tax? Yes. Okay. So it's, it's a, a raising of property tax. tax. Gotcha. Yep. Um, 
Yeah, and so the the arguments always come to it's just like any religious argument. In the end, <laughs> it always comes down to I'm wrong, you're right. Oh wait, I'm right, you're wrong. That's what it always comes down to, and and that's the basis of every argument. Everything else is just crap that we piled on top of it to make our argument look better. Right. So I guess I'll let you guys know what happens when I get done fighting. The if I come back black and blue, you'll know why. The important thing is is to make sure that you're educating your students, educating them uh, in skills and abilities that are actually applicable in the real world. And as we've talked about many times, no, 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 no. The important thing is they have to pass a test at the end of the year (laughs) to demonstrate mastery over something that some bureaucrat who doesn't know anything says they have to have mastery over. That is the important thing because if they don't pass that test, they didn't learn anything. Yeah. Seth, that was a great stump speech, but you just totally ruined my intro to the advertiser for the week. Sorry. The important thing about learning education is to make sure that you're teaching people skills that are useful to them. And as we've said many times on this this show in the past, Linux skills are becoming more and more important in the workplace. And a great place to go to brush up on and, and create your Linux skills is at the Linux Academy at linuxacademy.com. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Alex from the Linux Academy, I think I got his name right this time, uh, has actually become a paid sponsor of the Everyday Linux podcast. The first ever uh, person to give us money for the drivel that we spit out here. So uh, we talked about it. We did a whole show about it. But let me just hit some of the uh, the bonus points there. The Linux Academy is a, uh, offers step-by-step video courses uh, that uh, is designed at helping a beginner uh, learn to run Linux servers and to prep for certification. So if you're not a beginner, it's probably not for you. They don't have advanced stuff just yet. They're working on that. But right now, their their core focus, and I agree with the core focus, is to take somebody who doesn't know anything about Linux and make them somebody who does know stuff about Linux. That's If your name is the Linux Academy, that's a pretty good goal to have. Um, you get your own Linux lab server that they run on Amazon's uh, services. You can run up to eight different distros in it. You get PDF uh, download, uh, downloadable study guides and reference sheets that you can access when you're offline. Um, there's even some new courses being built right now for Samba and Python. So they're, they're uh, branching out of just the pure Linux uh, stuff and, and moving into the more Linux-related, open-source-related stuff. So uh, there's some good things going there. And for, for right now, if you want to try it out, you can get 30 days of unlimited access for a buck. How's that for a deal? Go That's to linuxacademy.com, awesome. sign up for uh, a month. It's a, The first month costs you a buck. Every month after that costs you 19 bucks. And uh, so you can have unlimited access to the videos, to, the, to all the content there for only $20 a month, less than $20, $19 a month. But your first month only cost you a dollar. So you try it out, you spend a dollar on it, you find out it's not for you. What have you lost? It's not a big deal. Or if, if you dig in and you think you really want to be there, you can buy a quarter, three months, for only $38. So that's uh, about a 30% savings uh, over the regular price if you uh, pitch in for the long term. Linuxacademy.com. Check them out. Tell them Mark sent you. And the one thing I like about the site is um, you go in there and it's not like some big whole long course you have to wade through to find that one thing you want to do is is if you have a specific task you're wanting to study or brush up on you can go and take a course over just that task so they don't try to teach you in one course the history of computers through creating your own distro 
they break each course down into segments that are you know easy to learn and then so that makes studying it you know i think easier so there's hundreds of hours of content there and uh more being built at this very moment as we speak so check them out now i'm it's bothering me i think i got his name wrong i called him alex as an anthem i can't i honestly can't remember i have such a brain block about the guy's name <laughs> I have to go. Anthony up. is his name. Anthony. See, I called yes. him Alex. His name is you called him Alex the entire show last time. I know. And see, I made a joke of it then, but that's the thing. It's become such a ingrained in me, such a joke that I can't even remember what his name really is. Anthony, sorry about that. But it's not important what his name is. What's important is linuxacademy.com. That's all you really need to know. All right, and moving into the tech news of the week, Seth has brought you a bevy of news stories, um, beginning with uh, our favorite thing, numbers, marketing speak, Windows 8 desktop share grows 2.6% in February. No, 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 it grows up to 2.6%. Oh. So, and uh, <laughs> uh, My mistake, it didn't grow 2.6, it grew up to 2.6. Right, so now... Five months into the launch that is Windows 8, they have approached almost half the market share that Vista currently has. This is not a rocketing product, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, and right. I wonder why. Yeah, Vista still has 5.17% market share, and uh, Windows 8, 2.6. So, uh, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Vista, let's make sure we don't gloss over that. Vista, what is the XP? It's probably still in the 30 range, right? Uh, let me see. Let me find it. I think XP is uh, 38, just yeah. under 39%. Yeah, I was and Windows 40%, so I wasn't yeah. too far off. So when when uh, when Windows 8 grows 10 times its current size, it still won't have caught up with XP. Right. And the Windows 7 is like, it's almost 45%, so it's the most used. Uh, you know, Windows 8 has overtaken some previous versions of mac os x so <laughs> congratulations guys oh you always wanted to beat apple you finally did at that just the yeah. it's the old versions of apple right yeah so uh you know and it only took them five months so way to go microsoft but you know microsoft is a big company uh with deep pockets and they can afford to fail and fail and fail until they perfect it and that's what right. they do. You know, Apple um, tries to get it perfect and then releases. And recently they've had some pretty spectacular failures. But their history is to they get it released nearly perfect. Uh, Apple releases garbage and perfects it while you're already paying them for it. Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft. What both. Say Apple. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, they're yeah. both doing it now. Right. But. And, and frankly, if I'm a businessman, the Microsoft model is the way to go. You mean they'll pay us for garbage? And then we'll fix it? That's better. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Uh, moving on to the next number of the week. Ubuntu is climbing up the charts when it comes to Steam. You know, uh, uh, Valve just recently released uh, Ubuntu or, or Steam for Linux, and, and Ubuntu is just rocketing up there. The number one distro for all Linux distributions out there is now a whopping 1%. Of Steam's market share. Yes, just over 1%. But, you know, the thing is, 
they've kind of done it overnight. And if you look at the number of games that Steam has for Linux, which is only 73, you know, Mac has over 500 games available through Steam, and Windows has, you know, buttloads of right. games It really available. is a chicken and egg problem, right? So, right. But, you know, if you look at how fast, which, you know, I know, granted, it's only 1%, but if you look at the long view, I think it says that, I mean, it seems to bode well for Linux in general, and it seems to think that... um Maybe Steam had it right by going there because I don't think Windows 8 is doing so stellar. Well, it has uh, it has just under nine percent. So uh, you know it's apparently Windows 8 people use Steam um, because Windows 8 is the one point whatever the two point six percent of people must all be on Steam downloading games because it accounts for over eight percent of Steam's usage. Well, let's face it, Windows has been the de facto PC gaming platform for a long time. Everybody is playing catch-up to Windows. Uh, And so the fact that uh, anybody's making any uh, uh, inroads is pretty good. And the fact that uh, Linux is is really, it's brand new. But it was this pent-up demand, right? So people have been using Valve on Linux, using Wine for a while. And I'm wondering if maybe that's why the numbers are so low, because people didn't see any reason to change. The the guys who wanted to do it were already doing it. Yeah. I would say that's probably part of it. Uh, what's impressive, though, is that in two months they've gone up to one point, the one point one two percent. Considering when Mac first hit, I don't think they were even anywhere close to that in two months. So, what's you know, in a year, I want to come back and let's see what that number is. And talking about year predictions, uh, it has been predicted that for the year twenty thirteen. Android will make up 58% of all smartphone app downloads. Right. I thought that was a, a staggering number, you know, that, um, cause you know, Apple iOS had the great head start and they ruled the smartphone market and now they're going to be down to like one third of it. And that's like, you know, based on marketing data and trends and people's whose job it is to calculate stuff like that, think that by the end of the year, um, more than half, 58%, and they cite 56 billion smartphone app downloads expected this year. So that's not ones that were already, that's downloaded this year uh, will be Android, and the Apple will be 33%. So it it was just kind of eye-opening that, um, that the numbers have changed that much that fast. And while this isn't a number, it feeds right into there. Another story says that Android devices will, in the year 2013, outnumber iPad sales. Yes, in the tablet. So just like Android did on um, the smart or the smartphone, they are going to do on tablets. Now, um, iPad will still have the largest single market of tablets because you know let's there's the iPad and the iPad Mini versus Android. You know you have the Nexus the uh, tab, the tab mini, the, uh, uh, transformer and a whole bunch other. And that's not even including the nook or the Amazon, um, Kindle, which is kind of, even though it's based on Android, it's considered its own thing and these kind of things. So they're expecting that by the end of the year, that tablets, Android devices and tablets will equal, if not be greater than apples in tablets. Whereas right now, Apple has a uh, a pretty substantial lead. And there's there's really no mystery behind that. They're so cheap now as to be disposable. 
that's right. how there is to it. Well, yeah. and you know when they first came out, you know let's be honest, they were they were second class. You know, Android and Android lovers and open source lovers and Apple haters could claim all they want. Oh, it's just like an iPad. Well, no, it wasn't. It was it was clear. I mean, there were some things it was better at, but if you had to say which one is better, a a person without a dog in the fight, so to speak, would say uh, that Apple one is better. But now, I think they're at least parody. If you know, and some of some of what the Android community is doing is starting to outstrip Apple. And so, once the better, once you have the better product, especially when it's the cheaper product, I think you know it's only a matter of time before the market will reflect that as well. Yeah, as as I talked about around Christmas time, I bought my two oldest kids Android tablets for eighty dollars, I think it was, um, and they're great. You know, they're not as good as an iPad, not anywhere near. The hardware isn't nearly as good, but it cost me a quarter of the price. Right. Um, and you know, the the middle child has already got like a, a spider crack in the glass where she's broken it, um, but it still works. She's still using it, and I'm I'm not too upset about that. By the way. I'll uh, go ahead and put this uh, out there to the listeners. Any of you out there do repairs on on these devices, let me know. I'd like to get her a new screen put in. Uh, I know I could probably find the parts on eBay and do it myself, but I'm just not interested in doing it. Uh, so if somebody out there uh, would like to do that for a few bucks, I only paid 80 bucks for the unit. I'm not going to be interested in paying you a whole lot of money to fix it. Uh, but if, if it's something you'd like to do and, and make a few dollars out, let me know because I'd like to get her a new screen. Cool. Uh, so there we go for that. And switch. Shifting gears entirely. Uh, just uh, this is just a, a little bit of internet history. What is the oldest torrent on the Pirate Bay? Clearly, it's got to be some Hollywood movie, right? Because according to Hollywood, that's all that's on the Pirate Bay. The, it's some blockbuster. It's the Hurt Locker, something like that. Or it's maybe because, you know, the RAAA has got to get in there too. It's got to be a Metallica album. Uh, it, clearly, it must be. No. No, it's not. What is it, Seth? Uh, after nine years, Revolution OS, a documentary covering the history of Linux, GNU, and the free software movement. So the Pirate Bay has been around, uh, or it will re- it is about to celebrate its 10th anniversary and the oldest working torrent is uh, almost nine years old. And it is a torrent about the history of Linux, GNU, and the free software movement. I thought that was just kind of interesting. Uh, the torrent was uploaded March 31st, 2004. Wow. Now, so yeah, that, that, that's a long time for torrents, uh, I think, to last. Because, you know, usually whenever something comes out, there's a lot of torrents, and then as time goes by, you might get down to one working one, and then some portions of it, and then you know you can't find it anymore. So, I might add that it is in fact a bootleg. Revolution OS is a is something that is for sale. It is not freely downloadable. You can get it uh, in hard copy. Uh, you can get DVDs. Uh, you can buy it online, but it is not something that is offered for free at revolution-os.com. Um, it's just not, if you want it, you got to pay for it unless you're on the pirate bay. So it is true that the oldest torrent on the pirate bay is in fact a bootleg. Well, and that, that kind of fits, you know, come on, it has to be bootleg. You don't want some legitimate thing being the oldest torrent on there. 
you, you don't want some like Linux distribution or something people could actually legitimately use. Well, I mean, would you want a nine-year-old Linux distribution on there? I mean, yeah. really, you know, I would hate to try to go and boot up Ubuntu 1.0 or something and try to download that and get that working on a computer today. Could right, you so- imagine how the compiling would be on that? For <laughs> you know, because how many things have been kicked out of the kernel since then? Well, support for the 386 has, right? So. Which is probably what it would have been written on, right? If it was that old. So here's an interesting uh, conundrum because Revolution OS actually sounds like kind of a movie I would uh, enjoy watching in a passive sort of way, but I'm not going to pay for it. So the only way I ever would watch that show is if somebody gave it to me, if it was offered for free or through a uh, a, a pirate. So maybe the only reason it's popular is because uh, nobody actually wants to pay for it. Uh, because, you know, if it was on Netflix in their documentary category, sure, I'd watch that, along with, you know, the high cost of low prices, uh, a scathing editorial about uh, Walmart or, or uh, what is it, Super Size Me. I've watched a lot of them there. I love the documentary category on Netflix. And if this were there, I would watch it, but I ain't going to buy it. <laughs> so that's why it's done so well on the Pirate Bay. Uh, two terms that I have often said are oxymoronic. They cannot exist in the same sentence. Network security. You can either have a secure system or you can have a network system. You cannot have a secure network system. And uh, ZDNet finally has figured that out. Yeah, the uh, they post an article, and uh, the thing that caught my eye was the title of the article. Reckless IT pros are missing security holes in non-Microsoft software. And the gist of the article, and I mean, I thought, it, you know, a lot of times we call BS on an article, and we got one of those later in that I really want to get to. <laughs> um, but this one is like, you know, we spend so much time, you know, have you patched your have you patched your operating system? You know, have you patched your browser? Uh, the major ones, but most of the vulnerabilities that are found are not out there. You know, like Java. Java's got a lot of press lately, and you know the one. There's one surefire way to make Java secure, and that's to take it off your system. Um, but uh, you know, Flash, uh, Instant Messenger, Adobe Reader, Apple QuickTime, Apple iTunes. You know, those are just laden with vulnerabilities, but nobody ever talks about them. But yet, you know, Microsoft still today gets hammered for being insecure because they release updates for it every month. Um, so I just, you know, you hear people talk about security, and security is a great buzzword, uh, you know, and you have to patch. And it, even where I work, you know, they push out the OS patches, and, you know, in the middle of the day, I get this box that says, oh, you have to reboot your system. And I'm like, well, I don't want to reboot it yet. Right. Uh, I'll wait till the end of the day. And, um, you know, but. Yeah, and we have to for PCI and a bunch of other industry buzzwords, but there's so many other things there that are out of date that fall under the radar, but yet we have a secure network because we keep our operating system patched. And And where I work, all of those buzzwords are tied into one word, compliance. You just throw the word compliance at somebody, doesn't matter what it's about. And they'll they'll just say, okay, you win, you win. It's it's like uh, a woman can win any argument with a man by men, uh, mentioning something menstrual related because we huh? were just like we we have no context to that. You win, right. you know. That's where I work. Just say the word compliance, you'll win on any argument. Yeah, and I I work for a cable company, and PCI is uh, you know payment card interconnect or something because we take credit cards 
we have to be PCI compliant. So if somebody gives us a hard time, you know, you say compliance, we say PCI related, you know, th that trumps you, Mr. VP. That's it's right. PCI related. You can't have Google Chrome. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, you know, and anyway, it's just, you know, just remember that there is more to security than your underlying operating system. Especially well, in fact, today. that's why these other things, uh, Flash and, and Java, poor Java, uh, <laughs> I heard a great no, acronym for Java. Don't just, Java. Just another vulnerability announcement, J-A-V-A. -A. Um, you know, it's, 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 the fact is, OSs are so hardened now that, that the, uh, that Flash and Java and PDFs are, are the low hanging fruit. So that's where everybody goes now because we finally got good at securing our OSs. Good ish. Um, you know, and I know we um, Linux folks, we GNU slash Linux folks uh, like to blast uh, Microsoft. But the fact is, their latest round of operating system, really since Vista, yeah. has been very solid security-wise. Yep. Yeah, I'll have to agree with that. And, I may not and, like it, but I'll agree with it. Yeah. And anything based on the GNU slash Linux uh, kernel is is very solid. And the, the Mac OS is, you know... Uh, a Unix derivative is is very solid. So we the the big three are you know not impenetrable by any means, but but hard to crack. So they're going for other things that that have been ignored, uh, and that's why I think we're seeing the growth in things like Android apps because the Android system itself is pretty locked down. But you can get to an app where the where the screen clearly comes up and says this app wants these permissions, and the user says I don't care, I want pretty stuff, and clicks yes. And that's not a vulnerability. Android gets blasted for that, but that's not what it is. That's not a vulnerability. That's you gave your the app permission to do that. Um, yeah, the the weakest link is always the person behind the keyboard. Yeah, wetware yeah. is the biggest problem. But you can't have this pretty wallpaper unless you give me access to your contacts, call history, and current location. Right. So, but you agree. So right. yeah, and the ability to access the network at any time. Yeah. Right. Uh, I have apps like that. I have one of my favorite apps, by the way, uh, I think it requires a rooted device. I don't remember. I'm always rooted, so I don't remember what does or doesn't. LBE Privacy Guard uh, lets me give permissions to apps individually. So, you know, I, I download a game like Angry Birds that says I have to have network access. Well, there's only one reason Angry Birds would need network access. That's to serve me ads. That's it. So I go to LBE Privacy Guard and I say this app doesn't get network access. Problem solved. <laughs> or, or you know, a wallpaper app that says it needs to read your contact list. No, no, you don't. But I want the wallpaper app, so I'll download it and then I'll go to LBE Privacy Guard and say untrusted app get, gets no access. So that's a good uh, mix. However, uh, that may be in some trouble in the near future because Google has decided that uh, ad blockers are not allowed. Shocking. A company that makes 99.9% .9 of their revenue on ads doesn't want ad blockers in their store. Go right. figure. Yeah, and technically, ad blockers do violate a specific uh, section of the agreement. Um, you know, you agree that you will not engage in any activity with the market, including the development or distribution of products that interferes with, disrupts, damages, or accesses in an unauthorized manner, the devices, servers, networks, or other properties or services of any third party, including but not limited to Android users, Google, or any mobile network operator. So technically, ad blockers violate that policy, but at the same time, I really would want an ad blocker because I, you know, 
when I get Sudoku, I didn't I didn't download something called serve up ads all over my key space every time I touch it. I wanted to play Sudoku. So right. uh, you know, so that's it's one of those. I mean, I understand Google wants to make money through advertising and. The developer wants their cut because the ad was served through them, so they get their portion of a penny times a million or whatever. Um, but I, I don't want ads. I want the program. You know, I, like when okay, I download. Well, Seth, here's an interesting um, conundrum, and so it's one I've. I don't. I honestly don't have an answer to. I'm, I'm posing the question: If you uh, buy an ad-supported app or, or use an ad-supported app right. and block ads, are you stealing that app? It, this question. show, for example, this exact show right here is ad-supported now. Thank right. you, Anthony, from the Linux Academy. This is an ad-supported show. If you skip over that ad, are you stealing the content of this show? It's, it's, a, it's a question I don't have an answer to, so I'm not preaching at anybody, but it's worth asking. Um, the, there's a certain unwritten agreement, and sometimes a written agreement, about uh, free content. You know, it's generally, it's a third-payer model, third-party payer, television, radio. Uh, um, uh, Big Bang Theory costs millions to produce, but it, right. we get it for free. Somebody's paying for that, and who's paying for that is, you know, the, the toothpaste ads and the, you know, the whatever else. They're the ones who are paying for that. So if I skip over that with my DVR, am I not a thief? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, uh, I... I you know, like for me, there's a difference between ads and product placement. So, um, but I, I don't know. I don't like ads. Well, I should say I don't like the crappy way that ads are served up. You know, whenever you have a four inch screen, I don't want the ad to take up three and a quarter inches and leave me this other little thing that is smaller than the size of this freaking finger to try to do an app with. So, and, you know, and I totally get that. That's an excellent justification for your wrongdoing. But does right. that make it not wrongdoing? Yeah, because I'm not going to pay for the app. Uh, right. That's, so. that, I've heard that argument before, too. It, it doesn't represent lost revenue. The people right. who are going to steal from you would never have paid for it anyway. So yeah. there's, there's really no lost revenue there. Yeah. If I if they if I purchased an ad that like or purchased an ad, I would I would consider purchasing an app if I knew the app was ad free. So, but almost know. all not not all but almost all apps in the Android store give you the option to pay for an ad free version. Right. Nobody does. Right. Well, I don't. I have. I do. I don't have an Android device yet, so I've never really been to the Android store. And my iTunes experience is very old and out of date now. So, But yeah, so I, I, I don't know. Chris, what do you think about that? Well, for me, on my Kindle, um, I have both ad-supported apps and paid apps. Um, I really wish that when I paid for my, let's say, Angry Birds, we'll pick on them. Because they, they have a really painful ad, usually, right? It's right in the middle of your view. Um, right, right, right where you need to touch. So right. So that you're guaranteed to touch the ad. Right, or like in my daughter's case, she clicks on the ad, not meaning to, because she's trying to play the game. So for me, in my in, uh, this is a kind of a dig on Amazon's Kindle as well, but if I pay for an app, 
say Angry Birds, that should strip those ads out of it. Instead, you have to buy the app that says ad free and not get the ad supported one. So now on my Kindle, I have Angry Birds, that's ad free, and all the difference between the icon between that one and the other one that sits right next to it because they both start with A is one says no ads, one says ads. So why can't the program be smart enough to say, this is a paid user, he never gets ads? The programs need to be smarter to eliminate the ads out of your way. But because why would you like, have vers- for example, both versions Mar- on your tablet? Once you pay for the ad-free one, why do you keep the, the free one? It, because the way Kindle keeps your apps stored, they see them as individual apps. They're not the same app. And so on my Kindle, my daughter goes to the games button, and then it lists out all the ad- all the games that are listed in, on the device that are, are attached to that device. But can you so, not delete the, no. the ad version of the app? You can't delete no. it? No. It, sh- really? it stays showing up on the device. You can't no. remove it from your library. No, it's it stays in the in, in the library. It's not on the device. There's an arrow pointing down saying it's going to download it, so I have to remove it every week. But because every time she touches it, it downloads it. Yeah. So well, that's definitely well, an Amazon glitch. It must be. But my point though is, like with Mark with with LastPass, you're use you paid for LastPass. I did because you wanted the extra features. Why not have apps the same way? I paid a dollar a month for LastPass. I don't have a problem with it. I did that before I had a mobile device because it was an application I believed in. Now, I know the games are never going to get paid for because most people don't want to pay for games because they're time-wasting games. But give people that want that ad-free environment the ability to make that purchase simpler. And well, I bet in a, you they in a have... pure Android environment, Chris, you can totally do that. Okay. I can go to, I can go to the my Android Play Store, my part of it, and remove something, and it's removed from all of my devices. And so I don't have to have both versions. So you're dealing with a weirdness of of the Kindle. As Nightstar in the chat room says, deleting an app on a Kindle is almost impossible. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what design decisions they made there. Um, yeah, well, that's, it's broken. That's not Android. And it's broken not only on my version of Android or on my version of my Kindle, which is the Kindle One, the Kindle Fire One, and my mom's version of the Kindle Fire, which is the newer one, the HD model. So it's something to do with the the Kindle Fire juice that Amazon put into it then. One of the things I like about this particular article on osnews.com, this is kind of writing you can only get on the internet. Uh, I'll read the first uh, paragraph for you. In all honesty, it's taken far longer than I anticipated. Google, the world's largest internet advertising company, has removed several popular ad blocking tools from the Play Store. While they're technically in their right to do so, they violate the Play Store developer agreement. It's still a bit of a dick move. Now, that line you can only get on the internet. You're never going to hear Tom Brokaw say, it's still a bit of a dick move. So, uh, (laughs) you know, I love that. Yeah, I thought the article actually did a pretty decent job of, of talking about it so and i thought that you know the uh the element op faithful would love to know about it as well you know as a as a as a user i don't like ads i run ad block uh blockers in my in my browsers uh chrome and firefox the ones that i use most uh i run ad blockers in them and so i'm i'm stealing content left and right too um and and i 
I haven't quite decided whether I'm a, I'm a thief or not. I, I, I kind of come down on the fact that I am because technically I'm taking something without paying for it in the method that was intended. Uh, for example, when I use Facebook, my ad blocker takes away all the ads. So there, there is only one revenue source for Facebook, and that's ads. And well, I'm, no, you can pay a dollar to send a message to someone who's not your friend. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so I am using the service without the revenue source. Um, I don't think that makes me a bad person, but I think technically it makes me a thief. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting world. And, and like you said, Seth, if the ads were less annoying, they wouldn't bother me. For example, in my Gmail, I don't block those ads because those ads are actually sometimes relevant and useful, uh, and they don't bother me. Uh, so, you know, there are places where I have ads and places where I don't. Uh, and it's just, it depends on the, the ad itself and how well, um, like, for example, uh, back in the day when, with the old Mac versus PC ads, right? I would be skipping through on my DVR. I'd see one of those. I'd back it up and watch it because it was a good ad. Yeah, um, it, it was, it was uh, technically incorrect, but they were well, very good ads. <laughs> I loved watching them. But I didn't, you know, I mean, I realized they were lying, but. So the solution, I think, is not to ban, ban ad blockers, but, but to get better at ads. Right. Yeah, and make the ads less intrusive. Um, because there's a lot of sites that have ads that are decent and that I don't block with my ad blocker either. Um, it's the ones that, and I, I usually leave my ad blocker off. And then I only, because uh, the one in Firefox, you can script to say, you know, it's always off except for these particular places. Right. Right. Um, that's how I have mine on. I, you know, I leave my ad, the ads wide open on ninety nine percent of the sites, except for the ones that give them the you know the the jump up at you ads that take over your whole screen. I hate them. Or the ones that fly in. You know, you're reading your content, you're going down right. the screen, and all of a sudden a car drives over top of your reading. Right. Because yeah, they're, they're advertising a that. car. Ugh. You know, that's the new version of the punch the monkey. You know, yeah. and and. Uh, I would like to punch the developer of the monkey, but uh, yeah, those those ads are super annoying. Where when they actually obscure the item that I'm there to read. Yeah, um, yeah. But again, those are convenience arguments that we're making that explains why we're bad people. It doesn't change the fact that we're bad people. No, we're but not the bad. Is we're full just of bad people. we're discriminating. You know, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to smell crap. So. I don't walk around open cesspools, you know. <laughs> you know, you make this, you make the crap smell like perfume, and then I want mine being around it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's a bad analogy. Actually, I like that a lot. Uh, make the crap smell like perfume, and people will, will will flock to it. They'll want your ads, right? Yeah, you know, like, and Apple is a perfect example of that. Yeah. Justin Long, he was awesome, and whatever the other guy's name was, I enjoyed the ads. They were John very Hodgman. funny. Yeah. Okay. John, what was his last name? Hodgman. Hodgman. So he was very great. I love those. I, it never made me buy an Apple, but I did love the ads. I mean, how many people went to YouTube just to watch that ad? Right? That's a that's an example of people flocking to your ad. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many times have you gone back and rewatched the original Apple 1994, uh, 1984 ad with the chick with the big boobs running around? I mean, uh, that's been replayed for 30 years now. That because it was a good ad. Okay, that that's enough sermonizing about that. Uh, Microsoft had an oopsie moment, and and <laughs> they've just run out of excuses. They no longer have any good excuses 
And so what they came out with is the reason that Outlook and Hotmail was out for some users is it got a little hot. Yes, apparently some servers in the data room got hot to the point that it required a physical person to go there and replace some part and fix the situation. And the main reason I want to talk about this is because, you know, you can do everything right on your end, you know, but the thing is, if you are using a cloud-based service, you are at the mercy of someone else. And like here, it it probably wasn't even a Microsoft site. It's some colo provider that they have, co-location, meaning that it's owned by someone else that they house, like, I'm sure everything at whose one rack of server the heating fans or the cooling fans went out on and the servers got too hot and overheated so all of the data that was the portion of the database that was on that server couldn't be read because they couldn't access those servers so microsoft didn't have any control over it you didn't have any control over it nobody had any control over it but some third party fourth party fifth party guy down the road um had to call his local geek squad person to go out in the middle of the night and take care of it. So, but you have to really reconsider your, your, uh, uh, content delivery network when one room can get too hot and knock your service offline. Well, and apparently though, it wasn't everybody because I was online during those times and it didn't affect me. So it was only some users, but but, it was a huge percentage of, it was thousands and thousands of users. Right. But yeah. And that's just the thing, you know, if your business relies on the cloud, you have no control over it. You know, your site could be down and you have no control over why it's down. So at least if you have the stuff on your end, you know, granted with the internet, some spot could always fail in the middle. So it's just a reminder that um, putting all your eggs in one basket, what happens if you can't find the basket? Yeah, what I've told people hundreds of times in my career is there is one undeniable immutable fact about technology and that is that it will fail um and i've had bosses say can you can you design us a system that's not going to come down no i can't all technology fails that's the only thing you can guarantee about it it's going to fail um and you have to have some sort of plan in place and it sounds like microsoft had sort of a you know a, a mediocre plan in place it didn't cripple the service but clearly there wasn't redundancy for that data or there wasn't redundant pathways uh in that data center so you know there's some issues there uh but it, you you bring up a good point the at some point something's going to get hot <laughs> and and humans are going to have to get involved and uh when you put stuff on the cloud or if it's your on your own server I mean, i've been in a situation where i owned the server room and the air conditioner broke and my servers went down uh it's no better you know it, yep. then at least in the cloud situation you got somebody else to blame it on right. in yeah. that case it was totally my fault right so either plan for outages or spend billions of dollars for local your choice yeah. <laughs> and you know i don't think any you know enterprise critical stuff is running on hotmail out there if so those people need to reconsider their business plans um but you know like for example my um if the if the serve the hosting provider that i use for my website fails it doesn't matter how distributed my stuff is uh, it's not going to get there so you right. know like for example if my hosting provider went out 
You could still send me mail, Market Element Opie, because that's a different service. I don't use their mail service. But you wouldn't, you know, still you wouldn't be able to get to my content. So if my so the way I have it distributed, uh, different parts can go down without the hole going down. But still, any one of those parts will cripple me for a while, and I just have to trust these people. You know, they have a, a clause in their contract that guarantees me ninety nine percent uptime, but that also guarantees one percent downtime. Right. Right. Yeah. And then you're you're at a, a multiplying demand there because eventually that ninety nine percent will fail, or you'll you'll get to that point where you're that one percent. Well, if you've had ninety nine percent uptime or the uptime for six years. What's that one percent of six years? Right, and then you know, then it becomes the law of averages. You know, you're going to crash. Things right. have been going too good for too <laughs> long. Things are going to die. Uh, okay, one last story. Um, oh, I didn't mean to cross that one out. The uh, what Seth calls the crap news alert of the week. Uh, <laughs> Linux trailed Windows in patching zero day exploits in 2012. Those bad Linux guys couldn't get off their butts and out of their mom's basements to fix these things. Yeah, and you know, you talked about, we've talked about in the past how the person who writes the headline is not necessarily the person who writes the article. Well, this time they both did because, you know, the article talks about zero-day flaws and uh, it even goes on to talk about how there were more in Windows discovered last year than there was in Linux and the ones in Windows were of considered a higher nature in Linux, but yet for this particular thing, uh, darn it, I clicked on the page and lost what I had highlighted. I hate it when I do that. Um, Let me read the summary article while you're trying to find it again. The summary sentence is, zero day flaws in the Linux kernel patched last year took an average more than two years to fix, twice as long as it took to fix those affecting the the current Windows OS. A report by security researchers has found. Right. And so uh, they go on and talk about, um, um, they use this vulnerability scoring system identified uh, in the Linux kernel was lower than Windows last year with nine found in Linux compared to 34 in Windows. So they found nine vulnerabilities in Linux and 34 in Windows. The overall seriousness of the vulnerabilities in Linux was 7.68 on their score, and the lower the score, the better. And the overall score in Windows was 8.41. So here we go. We have nine vulnerabilities found in Linux and 34 in Windows, but yet, for the whole basis of this article, they used two Windows vulnerabilities and two Linux vulnerabilities to make the entire meat of this article. And once you get down three-quarters of the way through the article, you get a sentence that says, however, the data shouldn't be interpreted as a claim that an OS built off of the Linux kernel is necessarily less secure than using a Windows OS, as not every distro of Linux would necessarily be affected by every exploit. Right. But, you know, it, it wasn't just the headline. It was the meat of the article talks about how, you know, and even they have this nice pretty graph that shows, you know, and the the line for the Linux goes all the way across, and the one for Microsoft only goes part of the way, and, you know, Cisco's even smaller. Uh, It's just, it's pathetic that this guy, you know, and of course, I mean, I I read it, so who's more pathetic, him or me? But, (laughs) you know, he, he goes on and talks about and writes about how it took over two years 
to patch in just barely over one year uh, for Windows. And then he lists nine. So, you know, less than one quarter of the Linux vulnerabilities and, you know, less than 10% of the Windows vulnerabilities. So he didn't even use all. If he had used all of them and nine Linux versus 34, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But instead, I'm sure they cherry picked the two for Windows that were made the stats look good and the two for Linux that made the stats look bad for them. It, it, I just hate it was just a. Uh, so people, if you're going to see a headline, read the article, but read the whole article before you go out and blast somebody. So, yeah. and that's he, what you call a hatchet job there. They had an agenda. They knew what they were going to say and they went and found uh, data to support what they were going to say. Yep. Figures never lie, but liars figure. Yes. I think I've heard that somewhere before. Yeah, and wasn't a few it few times. Yeah, Mark Twain said there's only three kinds of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Yes. So. <laughs> that always makes me laugh when I hear that one. Oh, that, there's an interesting point. Nightstar in the chat room says the paid people do better than the volunteers. Hmm. Why is that surprising in any way? Touche. Uh, yeah. So, okay. Uh, that's it for the news. And now we have an exhaustive and and easily three-hour-long uh, um, explanation of LXDE coming from our oh. command line godfather. Do we want to do LXDE first, or do we want to do the next bullet point first? No, let's, let's do yours. Okay. So I played with LXDE for about a month and a half. And for that first, oh, I'm going to say two and a half weeks, it was blinding pain. <laughs> um, and there were some issues there. Uh, you know, uh, some of it was the issues I've had with other environments, with the lack of control over pulse, the lack of control over uh, some of the display manager things, uh, the all-around sluggish feel for GNOME 3. Slap, slap, I'm, I'm hitting you around for that one. But uh, that first two and a half weeks, three weeks, four weeks of learning how LXDE works, how to get it configured to work right, the one hiccup I always kept running into, and I never could figure it out until after that two and a half weeks, was how to browse network shares. Um, it was killing me. Uh, I needed it for work, and there was nothing. There was no documentation of what things you needed to have installed in order for the, the network browser to work. Um, because it's using... Oh, what is the name of that thing? Uh... I can't remember the name of the file browser, but uh, it, it's not a standard file browser. So a lot of the, the commands that you're used to being able to do in, say, Nautilus or Dolphin, they don't work. Like, you can't right-click and make a link. That just doesn't, that's not an option. So you have to know how to make links in the command line. You have to know how to browse, you have to know what things to have installed in order to browse network shares, which is uh, the GVFS edition, so, or the little package for GV, I think it's GVFS. Um, and don't, uh, yeah, that's, I think that's right. But once that was installed and you found where to go to actually click the file, or uh, was it location in the network browser, because it doesn't show up in the lit in the panel. Uh, that was kind of a pain to get to figure out. Um, so I mean, the a lot of my old qualms and, and issues that I have with it are echoed in the other distributions that I've been on. 
Um, but I will say, once I got those issues out of the way, that environment is fast. Um, it's blinding fast. It was to the point where I was watching the memory usage and it got down to the point where I was using like, what, two tenths of the, the four gigs of RAM I have when I was just at the, when I was just at the windowsing environment, nothing running, just bare, bare operating system where like KDE sits at approximately eight tenths of my RAM. Uh, it was just interesting to see that my system would run with that low of a need of RAM. Um, I'm actually currently still using um, LXDE on my laptop. Uh, and I have a feeling it's probably going to stick around for a while. Um, I really do enjoy it. But it just goes to show that you have to give it more than a couple of days or a couple of weeks to see if you like an environment. Chris, my, my, my next assignment for you, because I am a sadist and enjoy causing suffering, JWM. That's the one you got to do next. JWM. Yes. Um, to, uh, it's a lot like LXDE, only take all of the weirdness of LXDE and none of the coolness. <laughs> and that's JWM. Um, I've used LXDE quite a lot uh, in the past, and, and it is, it's weird. It's just... It doesn't do anything like you would expect it to, and and it ain't pretty. Don't expect wobbly windows and transparency and and eye candy. It, it this ain't Windows Vista. Uh, there's nothing pretty there, but no, but um, it's fast. Yeah, it stays um, out of the way. It's it's a it's a really bare bones launcher system that uh, does everything you need it to do uh, once you figure out the way it wants you to do it. Yeah, you know, it's not flexible. It's not adaptive. There's not multiple ways to do things. There's a way to do things. And the one thing that just chaps me and it just absolutely drives me crazy is I am a multi-desktop person. Um, I'll have five or well, in any of my environments, there's you know the default is four normally when you turn on uh, multiple desktops, the virtual desktops. I I start at six. And go up from there, because I I'm very componentized. Um, every desktop has a use, and it has a thing, and it stays in that desktop. Um, and that's just my OCD kicking in, I'm guessing there. But so to have the task, the little the switcher, be straight across the taskbar at the bottom, and not let me stack it, drove me crazy, because. It takes up half of my bar, my taskbar, on my laptop. Why can't I stack that thing? That's because my the because the the taskbar is one one row high. I know. That's... Well, no, like in 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 KDE, um, and even uh, I don't think I can do an LXDE, but KDE and GNOME, both of them will allow you to. St it, it doesn't change the width any, but the icon gets smaller for the switcher. Oh, okay. So. If like I, I have KDE turned on right now, um, and I could flip the camera over there so I could show it to you, but it's stacked. There, you know, it's one, two, three, four. Where in LXDE, it's one, two, three, four across, and it just when you have, I had to actually turn my laptop down from eight to six because I couldn't fit anything on the taskbar. 
that would be my biggest issue with LXDE. Um, if the developers would give me the ability to, to stack those desktop switchers so I could have two rows. I don't want any more than two. You know, three would be too many, but two I think would be a good happy right. where you could have, you know, one, two, three, one, two, three stacked. And it, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I used it. Uh, it doesn't cascade tasks at all. It's It, it all fits in the, the task bar, and as you get more, they just get smaller. And eventually, you have no idea what they are. They're just a bunch of small little blobs there that might represent something. Well, that might be true, um, but I have it set so that way, whatever is in the window is on the taskbar. And when I switch to a different window, that doesn't show the other tasks. They're isolated to the the virtual window. Right. Um, because it. it doesn't let me stack anything. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm just talking about if you've got a bunch of things open down there at the taskbar, they just become little non-meaningful icons, and it's hard to switch between tasks, which you probably have less interest uh, uh, um, experience with because you do so many virtual windows uh, desktops. But if you've got if you take all those things on the desk all the different desktops, put them on one, then your icons on the taskbar are just meaningless Squares. little slivers. Yep. That that can't give you any real information. That that's my memory of it anyway. Yeah, that's and that's one of the reasons why I started doing multiple desktops, the virtual multiple virtual desktops, because I am a multitasker by heart, and I have at any given time. Well, like I have two lap, I have two machines sitting here in front of me, my desktop and my my laptop. Both of them have fifteen tasks running on each one of them that are current, and then there's on the desktop. Because I never shut this one down, it's got another one, two, another twenty that I haven't touched today. So they're just running because I didn't need. I don't need to turn them off because this is such a behemoth of a machine. All right. So uh, to sum up, um, it's much like switching to a Mac. You got to adjust to the way they do things, and it's going to be a pain. But after a while, you really like it. That would do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, well, and that's it's just like any other environment when you're switching to a new environment. Unless you're going to spend the time learning the the ambiance of the environment, you're not going to like it. Change hurts. Change is painful. Um, unless you're willing to give up pain or time, uh, you're never going to want to switch. Um, we'll see how you know maybe a couple months from now. Let's see if LXDE is still on my laptop. That would be an interesting question. Um, but as of this point, it's not going to come off of it. Joe's Windows Manager. I want to <laughs> hear what you have to say about JWM. Uh, I will. <laughs> I will try. I don't know if I will give it the month and a half that I gave LXDE, but I'll at least look at it. How's that? It's it. It's one of those things that once I figured it out, I was okay with it. But at first, it made me want to. It was preferable to stab my eyes out than to use JWM. <laughs> See the so. one. I, the one I always thought about. I've always been wanting to try because I like the way it looks when I look at their their website, and that's Enlightenment, the Enlightened Desktop. I've always liked the way that thing looks. I've just never been able to get the damn thing to install. <laughs> the, so. the minor things there. You know, yeah. minor things. It's pretty. It just doesn't work. I reached out to them a long time ago to come on our show, and I'm still waiting for a response. So, um, but yeah, I tried to play with Enlightenment. 
not everybody understands the power of the OP. Nope. And, you know, we, we've come a long way since then, so I might go back and hit them up. But. Uh, and I think that's it. I think we we had another topic there, but we're at uh, an hour and a half here. So, yeah, we'll uh, we'll move that to next week's notes. And so we've already got show notes for next week. Uh, so let's move into uh, the command line tip of the week. I see a big goose egg there. That's right. It is a big goose egg because I've been so busy this week with all of my personal life that the best I can do for a command line on the on the on the nut like this is just say I live in the command line. My day to day thing is command line, and I use yum install or yum whatever for everything. Um, even when I manually download a package, I don't click on it. I yum it on the command line to install the thing. The The tool is very powerful. It has a lot of stuff you can do with it. Uh, and if you're in the Fedora world, you better learn to love it because there's times when the other package manager breaks and yum always works. So that's uh, that's his version of the eyelid twitch. Anytime he has to reach for the mouse, his eyelid starts to twitch. Yep. As, as long as it's there on the keyboard, he's okay. But uh, to reach up and double click that package he just downloaded, that's too much. I'm gonna I'm gonna pop up a command line: Alt F1, uh, Yum, and then the first letter in Tab, something like that, right? Well, yeah, something like that. I mean, but you know, like I said. The command line's already open. You know, I'm already in a terminal session of, for of something. Of course you are. You don't so, have to open the terminal. Terminal. What was I thinking? Yeah, you had. <laughs> that's one of your task sequences at kickoff, right? Is open up the terminal <laughs> and shut down uh, the desktop. Sometimes. Is that is that in your startup <laughs> script? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Does that make me a bad person? It, it if it wasn't, it, it makes is you now because that's a great <laughs> suggestion. You know, that's what you should do for your tip next week: is how to make the command line auto start. <laughs> how to make the command line auto start and run full screen? <laughs> well, I don't know about full screen. You don't really need full screen, but you know there are applications that you could do, like the Quake terminal, or um, there's a couple of them that show up on a keystroke. So that way you can just hit F12 and you have the terminal right there. All right, developers, I have a great idea for you. Terminal wallpaper. Functional wallpaper that is the terminal. They do that. Yeah, there you go. It's already there. You just have to install the correct packages to do it. Oh, that made me sad. I actually, I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm weeping a little, the fact that that actually exists. <laughs> and for a long time I had that. Yeah. And I had it running top most of the time or something of the like, just so it would change. And I didn't need a screensaver then. <laughs> now, there's an interesting thing to discuss. We need to do some research on that. Do we really need screensavers anymore? I don't know that we do. I don't know that modern LCD monitors can burn in. Hmm. Maybe modern ones know. can't, but I know I've seen some LCD monitors with burn-in. So... I don't. They weren't the newest ones, but I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up because that's that's interesting. We've we've all gotten now. The reason we 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 don't run screensavers, we shut them down to save power. Right. So uh, that's the big thing. I you know I remember back when you had your your big CRT monitor, you know, thirteen inch monitor running constantly. Yeah, with with toasters or or lines or you know the Mystify screensaver that was on Windows three point one. Um, and it was a status symbol. What's what's your screensaver? 
Um, I just got the the electric company. The electric company loved it because it just made their meter spin faster. Because then, then they got into the 3D OpenGL ones, right? So now not only are you burning your, your monitor, but you're crunching on your CPU at the same time and they're making yep. the fan run. So, yeah, I think those were actually produced by the electric companies. <laughs> Probably were. I've always been a big fan um, of my Linux screensaver that does Fortune, all the different yeah, Fortune quotes. Yeah. And it types it out in the old, I think it's called Corsar or something like that. I think that's the name of the... I'll have to look and see what the screensaver is that does that. But it it's, it just types it out, and it's the, it's just a fortune quote. And then it... Or Pulsar. Pulsar. Ah, something like that. And then there was, for a while, it was popular for screensavers to make noise. Oh. I ran one that was a fireworks display that actually popped and exploded. Because that's what you want when you're not using your computer, is it to be making noise while you're trying to do other stuff. Oh, yes, because it's such a great idea. You know, I had uh, we had this TV one time. I don't remember where it was, but a, it was actually documented on their website that if a picture got burned into it, the way you got rid of it was you brought up a white screen and you just left it on a white. So you would like open up a document or whatever and full screen it, and so it would be blank. And that if it was white, it would burn out the image, and you would get back to your monitor. So it's kind of cool. That was the actual troubleshooting to fix the issue. Hmm. Interesting. See, my, I have an older plasma TV, and I love my plasma TV. This thing is, has been a beast. It's, it's just it's taken a licking and kept on kicking. But it actually has the pixel jump. So it'll be, if you have the image, it'll constantly be moving a little a seven-pixel range of movement constantly. But huh. it also has the ability, and I turned it on once and left it on and said that my, you know, I, I was playing an April Fool's, April Fool's Day joke on my wife. But it has where it has a solid black line that scans and resets and scans to to remove burn in because it's a plasma that would be susceptible to it. But I did that and left the house. So then when she came home, she came out of the, the, I think she was taking a nap. So she came out and looked at the TV and just about had a heart attack because the TV was running lines constantly (laughs) and not making any noise. It was the best prank ever. <laughs> They're here. Yeah. I got in a little bit of trouble for that one. You remember the first DPMS monitors, dual mode power savings, um, where they'd shut down and then you would go to mouse and they'd go and then <laughs> the image would come back up. You remember that? Yes. You could hear the relay click inside. It always scared oh. me because I was afraid they were going to zap me. I, I, I just had this in. Maybe it's because I've been electrocuted so many times growing up. But every time I saw one of those things come on, I stepped back because I was afraid that there's going to be a jump of electricity and it was going to get me. That's funny. All right, that's enough reminiscing. Uh, that's great hairs got to stick together. So if you guys out there, you young whippersnappers, uh, actually, I've, I've been getting uh, still, as people are downloading the uh, episode 84, I think it was, uh, about... Um, uh, sending me feedback where we did the pseudo send me a message command. I'm still getting uh, con- comments uh, from them, uh, and and by and large, they're all 40 and 50-something people, which didn't surprise me. Uh, but every now and then, there's a young guy. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw out there. So, Seth, what is your weird link? 
of the week. Well, growing up, I loved to play Tetris. And actually, I I would love to have the original Nintendo Game Boy with the black and white Tetris on it because I loved playing that game. And so I was perusing the web one day, and I came across this website. It is One Dimensional Tetris 2.0. And the link uh, will be in the show notes. Trust me, guys, you just want to go and play. I started playing just a little bit before we recorded the show, and my current score is over 550 million, and I'm over 3,700 lines. So uh, just go there and play One Dimensional Tetris 2.0. It is awesome, and you can rock. If you're not a gamer, this is the game for you. That's that's all I got to say. Anybody can play this game. One Dimensional Tetris. 2.0. So I, I don't know what 1.0 was. Uh, I have dimensional Tetris. <laughs> yeah. So I, but yeah, Chris, check it yeah. out. It, it would, you know, it looks sort of like a command line game. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm up you, over 50,000 already. Yeah. You first load it up and you're thinking, okay, what's next? Oh, now I get it. One dimensional Tetris. Yep. Yeah, it, it's you have that moment of of cognition, and it's brilliant. <laughs> and for me, I hate Tetris. I I was I, for I don't know what it is about Tetris in me, but I hate it. Um, I can do this one. <laughs> yeah, you can rock this one, man. It's awesome. Um, and you can enter your high scores. I, I, what is the what is the current high score? I, um, I had it earlier. Current high score is. One billion one hundred nineteen million five hundred uh, three hundred ninety-seven thousand nine hundred three. So that guy spent a lot of time playing one-dimensional Tetris. <laughs> this this isn't quite the uh, backyard amusement parks, but it's way up there. It's it's easily as good with with uh, as are we alone dot com or whatever it was. Yeah, right. The alien abduction one. That one was good too. <laughs> Man, I, I'm trying, guys. I, I've tried to step up my level, and I try to throw in a couple of like actual useful links here and there. Like I got a good useful one coming up next week. Once you get to level 10, it gets really hard. It, mean, does. it really does. You got to concentrate. Uh, anyway, okay, guys. Uh, contact us. Uh, elementop.com. Pseudo, go and do it now. Uh, you can leave us. Uh, you can leave us a voicemail five five nine I am Opie or at elementopie.com. There's a voicemail widget at the top of the page. We need your. We we crave your feedback. We are insecure and need to know that the cool kids like us. And since they don't, we need to know that you geeks do. Um, so uh, send us your questions. Send us your comments. I would love to do another all comment show. Uh, to do that, I would probably need fifteen to twenty. Questions or comments between now and next Sunday. But I'd love to do that. We did it once before. Uh, it took a while to build those up, uh, but I would like to do that. So go, pseudo, go and leave us a comment. Um, also, if you happen to be slumming it on a Mac or Windows machine and want to load up iTunes and go to the iTunes store and uh, leave us a rating and a review, that is much appreciated. Uh, that's how you can spread the word. That's your little bit of evangelism you can do. If you're if you're a hardcore Linux person, it just ain't gonna work. There is no way to run iTunes on Linux. It just don't work. Um, Virtual machine. 
Yeah, Virtual VM. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, we do appreciate that. I know it's painful you for you guys. I know it makes your eyelids twitch, right? Uh, but but do it for us uh, and do it for the other people out there who are going to find us by doing that. That's your your bit of proselytizing. You can. There's a lot of bad Linux shows out there, and uh, let's save them from that. I had a great comment this week. I forgot to read it on the show, but the gist of it was, I like your show because unlike other Linux shows, you don't always talk about Linux. Yeah, let's not waste all that time talking about the topic of the show. Let's get to the other stuff. Those pesky Linux shows that only talk about Linux. We'll show them how it's done. I think he meant that as a compliment, and I'm going to choose to take it that way. So, uh, guys, thanks for listening. Seth, Chris, thanks for being with us. And I'm going to say that ends this episode of Everyday Linux.